Simulacra. Part 1. I spent the summer of my 12th birthday living at my grandmother's house, several hours away from mine. Normally, I only saw her on Christmas, and even then, she typically spent most of the day in the kitchen, only coming out for a few minutes towards the end of the meal, before retreating back to the kitchen to clean up until everyone started to leave. So from the start, I was wary at the prospect of spending an entire summer with her, unsure of what to expect or really who she even was, but as it turns out, she mostly left me alone. The most bothersome part of my stay was in my bedroom for the summer, normally the guest bedroom. That was where my grandmother kept her doll. A time-out doll, I would learn later. It stood about two feet tall, a life-size porcelain replica of a child of perhaps five, leaning against the wall in the corner opposite of my bed. He covered his eyes with his forearm, almost like he was crying. He was dressed like a farm boy from some time gone by, painted on tattered jeans and a ragged plaid shirt, straw hat tipped back on his head. To my horror, I quickly discovered that he had no face, just a smooth, glossy, blank slate of porcelain. The first night in the dark with the doll was almost unbearable. My grandmother's house at night was much quieter than I was used to, and I found that I could not bear to take my eyes from the corner where the doll stood. What if it wasn't there when I looked back? At one point, I got up to use the bathroom, and on my way back, I thought that I heard the faint sound of crying coming from my bedroom. But upon opening the door, I found the doll exactly where I'd left it. I placed a blanket over it, which helped me to sleep at least a little bit that night. The next day, I convinced my grandmother to remove the doll from the bedroom, at least as long as I was there. She initially refused and seemed angry that I didn't enjoy it as much as she did. She balked when I used the word creepy to describe it, and said that it couldn't hurt me, that it was in fact there to protect me. For that reason, she insisted that the doll not move any farther than the hallway. I reluctantly agreed. And yet, sleep came no easier that second night than on the first. The doll being in the hallway behind that closed door only made my anxiety worse. I couldn't keep tabs on it if it was moving around, plodding, and I found myself starting at every creak and groan the old house made in the night, worrying that I was hearing little porcelain footsteps just outside my door. As the weeks went by, I eventually learned to live with the doll and grew accustomed to life in my grandmother's house. She allowed me more freedom than I had at home, and without any of my friends around, I had to find ways to make my own fun. I tended to stick more to the countryside, full of creeks and old barns to explore, riding my bike around for hours. Ventures into town always made me feel uneasy. There was, to my recollection, almost never anybody out walking the streets or sidewalks. And yet, I always had the queer feeling that I was being watched, like someone was lurking behind all the cobwebbed, darkened second-story windows that lined the avenues of the town, tracking me, always ducking out of sight just as I swung my head around to look in their direction. Whenever I found myself in town, I kept my head down on my shoes and moved quickly. I felt that if someone was watching me, it would be worse if they knew that I knew. Once a week, my grandmother took me to the store with her. Without fail, every week, some adult would approach us and bend down to me, ruffling my hair or pinching my cheek and telling me how adorable I was, how much they loved the color of my hair before chatting a few minutes with my grandma. As this continued to happen over the course of the summer, I noticed that almost every adult I saw seemed at least as old as my grandmother, if not older. I also noticed that even in all of our trips to the store, 
one of the only places in town that I would reliably see other people. I don't recall ever seeing another child. A few days after the 4th of July, out exploring on my bike, I came across the elementary school. There were weeds strutting out of the cracks in the sidewalk. It looked as if it had been in disuse for some time now, much longer than just a few months of summer vacation. I placed my bike down and walked through a patch of overgrown grass to look into one of the windows. The classroom that I saw was sparsely furnished, a teacher's desk and several rows of empty student desks. But as my eyes adjusted to the gloom within, I noticed a figure in the corner. Another time out doll, similar to my grandma's. But this one, a little girl with blonde hair and a pale blue dress. Her back was faced to me, and as soon as I noticed the figure, I noticed others lurking in half-shadow all over the perimeter of the room, at least half a dozen. The door was open, and I could see lockers in the hallway, and I wondered how many more time-out dolls might be out there, might be in the rest of the school. I heard a car approaching and ran around the corner, out of view of the road. The car came to a stop outside the school, and I listened to the engine idling for several minutes as I waited for the car to move on. For a time I thought it never would, and I strained my ears, expecting any second to hear a car door open, to hear footsteps coming towards me. I had left my bike on the sidewalk in plain view. But eventually, the car drove away, and I rode my bike directly back to my grandmother's house. She was on the phone when I arrived home, and upon seeing me, she took the phone into her bedroom and shut the door. She was in there for nearly half an hour, and when she emerged, she asked if I'd like to go out for dinner at a restaurant in town. In almost two months, we had never left the house to go anywhere but the store, let alone somewhere for dinner. I told her I was feeling sick and went up to my room. The next day, I asked her to call my parents. She looked at me skeptically for a moment before handing me the phone. I begged and begged them to come pick me up and take me home for the rest of the summer. Finally, reluctantly, my father relented and said to pack my bags. They would leave their retreat that afternoon and be at my grandmother's house that evening to retrieve me. After I hung up, my grandmother took the phone from me, scowling. Her face was twisted into an expression of barely concealed rage like it was taking everything in her power not to wrap the phone cord around my neck. Terrified, I ran up to my room and waited for darkness. And all that time, I didn't hear a sound from my grandmother downstairs. No talking on the phone, no cooking, nothing. I imagined her sitting there at the kitchen table in the gathering darkness, staring at the same bottom step of the stairs that I was, each of us just out of the other's line of sight. This went on for hours until, just before midnight, I heard a car in the driveway. Headlights beamed into the house through the front windows. I grabbed my bags and rushed out the front door, not daring to look back over my shoulder. I climbed in the back seat and my parents drove me home. That was the last time I saw my grandmother. She died several years later. I didn't attend her funeral. Part 2 The house across the street had been sitting empty all winter, its windows darkened and its driveway covered by an untouched sheet of snow so pristine that someone passing through might have thought that there was no driveway at all. And then, sometime in May, the family which now resides there, and whose names I still do not know, began moving in. They came in concert with the buds on the trees, the green rejuvenation of the grass and shrubs, as if led by Persephone herself. The large moving truck parked in the driveway, now clear of all traces of winter, on a Saturday, touched down its jangly metallic ramp just in front of the garage door, and for several hours, all members of the family streamed back and forth between the two, the house and the truck, like a colony of ants. Two boys of school age, a girl of maybe 18, a husband and a wife. 
arms full departing the truck, carrying nothing but a tired determination upon each return. The week that followed was marked by intermittent trips in which the family van would disappear for several hours, usually with only the father, but sometimes with the daughter as well, and return stuffed full of an odd menagerie of household objects. The item that caught my attention most, and would hold it even to this day, came on the last trip of the van, one day short of a full week since the moving truck had come and gone. It was a full-sized mannequin that the daughter had, cheekily, I thought at the time, buckled into one of the rear seats in the van. Upon their arrival, she unbuckled the thing and tucked it under her arm and carried it with some effort into the house. A moment later, she reappeared in front of a first-story window, which faced my room, and set the mannequin down, standing him upright where he would remain, more or less unmoved, for the next several months. Watching the girl make adjustments to the mannequin to ensure it wouldn't topple over as soon as she walked away, it occurred to me that despite having spent countless hours staring at the facade of the house across the street, the house which now belonged, as far as I was concerned, to the mannequin, I hadn't the slightest idea what the inside was like, how many rooms there were, how they were arranged. The backyard was also a mystery to me, made even more alluring by a tall wooden fence that guarded the small portion that I would have been able to see from the angle of my window. The exact reason for my being locked in my room for weeks on end is immaterial to the narrative at hand and subject for another time. In the interest of full disclosure, even I don't know why my mother has chosen to treat me like this. I suspect that at some point I did, and that at some point the why stopped mattering and I forgot. Suffice to say, my mother has lost her mind, gone off the deep end, at least temporarily, if she thinks that this is acceptable, that I'm going to just take this lying down, so to speak, leaving a tray of food on my floor in the early morning while I'm asleep like some forsaken zoo animal. Left with nothing better to do, I would often sit on my bed for hours at a time, calling out, Mother! Mother! Let me out! I demand that you let me out! My pleas were always greeted with a resounding silence, amplified further by the echoes of my own yelling still vibrating in my ears. It was only when I would further my tactics, when I would decide enough is enough and make sure that I could no longer be ignored, when I would stamp my feet on the ground and pound on the door with my fists for minutes on end, that I would elicit a reaction from Mother. She would cut me off mid-tirade, and from somewhere in the bowels of the house I would hear a deep, almost organic, grinding noise, so loud that once it shook the walls enough to knock a framed picture to the floor a gurgling sort of roar that seemed not to have any one definite point of origin. It was too big. It sounded as if it emanated from an entire room or even an entire floor of the house, making my hair stand on end in a way that told me most of the sound was vibrating at a pitch too low for my ears to hear it. So instead I felt it in my chest cavity, like an enormous iceberg with 90% of its bulk under the surface of the water. My ears could only hear the top portion. That would shut me up for several hours, sap me of my will to protest. And so I watched the family across the street settle into their lives in their new house. Trash rolled to the curb every Wednesday night, grandmother over on Sunday nights for dinner. They never paid me any mind, never even noticed me as far as I could tell. But the mannequin did. For as long as I watched them, he watched me. Whenever I returned to my window, there he was, already at his, waiting for me. At times I worried he would tell the family about me. The daughter was a designer of some sort, or at least an aspiring one, every few days draping some new fabric or new dress over the mannequin. Day after day, outfit after outfit, he stared at me, his blank face taunting me. 
Each time I returned to my window and found him moved slightly, or posed in a dissimilar way to when I saw him last, I could never be sure if someone had moved or if he had moved himself. I'm sure everyone else in the house had more to concern themselves with the comings and goings of their daily lives than the minute movements of a mannequin. But not me. It would not be an exaggeration to say that I became obsessed with him in a fairly short amount of time. I became convinced that he was indeed moving of his own volition, and I was determined to catch him in the act, to see him move his hand just so, or tilt his head. But at the same time I feared what the ramifications might be if I did, what it might indicate if he decided that it was time to reveal himself to me. And the more I watched him, the more it seemed that the time was coming. I worried that I might go mad either way, mad from the waiting or mad from seeing something that could not possibly be. Some days I wept. The tears came naturally enough, but I'll admit that I often embellished the wailing to ensure that my mother could hear me. It made no difference. On the day when the school called, I hollered over and over until I was hoarse, my face pressed to the crack under my bedroom door, screaming, Mother, the school called. If I don't go in tomorrow, I'm going to lose my job. Do you hear me? I'm going to lose my job. Even then, her silence was resolute. But she was not gone. I could still feel her presence in the house with me, as sure as I could see my own two hands. The next day, my food tray came with a note, resting on top of the dry pile of cereal. Torn from the electric bill, scribbled in an almost illegible handwriting in black marker, it read, Substitute teacher isn't a real job. Get a real job. Oftentimes I wondered if the daughter sensed something in the mannequin as I did. Would she so readily let her guard down near it if she did? It drove me mad. Soon enough I found that I could think of nothing but the mannequin. My first thoughts waking up centered on him, on seeing how long I could hold out before going to my window to see him. It was never long. I grew to hate him. I felt as if he was taunting me. What's your issue, he seemed to be saying. I'm stuck here too, stuck in this same room in this same window, all morning and all night, and you don't see me complaining. You wake up in the frozen haunted hours of the morning and here I am. You look out your window and you see school children leaving their bus on a sunny spring afternoon, and here I am. And I'm perfectly happy. Why can't you be? There must be something wrong with you. I wanted to rip his head off of his body, put him in his place. I'm not a mannequin. I'd hold his head in my arms and knock his hollow, worthless body to the floor. I have important things I need to do outside. Like what, he'd say. Like what? A Saturday morning towards the end of June, I awoke to a dollhouse world. I blinked, paced around my room, and returned to my window, and still I could not see the world as I knew it was. It all appeared somehow wrong like seeing the world through a tilt-shift lens. The roofs were just a bit taller, steeper, and if you weren't used to looking at them or didn't study them closely enough, you would miss it, but they were. Walls continued along at incorrect angles. The sky seemed farther away. The trees somehow false, as if it were all constructed of plastic. My own desk appeared farther away than it had any right to be in a room so small. My bedroom door, too short, and tilted outwards towards the hallway. The geometry was all off. This new development in the world so preoccupied my morning that it was several hours until I noticed that there was no food tray waiting for me, and in addition to that, my bedroom door was unlocked. Just to be sure, I checked before I left and found the mannequin still watching, waiting for me. I think he knew I was coming. I cracked open my door and poked my head into the hall and listened. The house was silent. Mother was gone. Still, I crept as quietly as I could downstairs and then out the front door. 
The world felt alien. My skin prickled at the breeze. The family in the house across the street had left for the day and forgotten to close the garage door behind them. Checking around to make sure nobody was watching, I moved quickly across the street and into their garage. I tested the door into their house. It too was unlocked. The serendipity of both of these circumstances intersecting, my bedroom door being unlocked and the door to the mannequin's house also being unlocked, two events both unimaginable not 24 hours earlier, seemed almost too fortuitous to be true, like I was walking into a trap of some sort. But to turn around now was unthinkable. The house had the distinct smell of someone else's house and put my senses on edge. A soft creaking noise from somewhere in the interior of the house stopped me momentarily. The house settling? Someone left home with a sore throat? Or the great, barely perceptible movement of a stiff wind shoulder or knee joint that has until now been inert for a vast and unknowable period of time? I headed through the kitchen, holding my breath, hyper alert to the sound of my every step, making my way in the general direction of where I knew the living room to be down a beige carpeted hallway, and then to my left was a room that looked familiar. Floral couch, wood paneling on the walls. I entered and knew I was in the living room. There were three windows here, but no mannequin. Maybe I'm mistaken, I thought. Maybe the living room is the one over. But it was not. The mannequin was simply gone. I stood in the window where the mannequin had been standing not five minutes before and looked out at my house at my window. Was he hiding from me? Was this some cruel trick? I tore the house apart. I looked behind every couch and every closet under every bed. I checked the basement. I checked the attic, behind the hot water heater and in the showers, in cupboards and desk drawers, even looking for a hand or a piece of the mannequin. Anything. But there was nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I threw pillows off of the beds, emptied the washing machine, tossed pickle jars from the fridge. He had to be here. I had to find him. Had to. Had to. I was upstairs with my head in the laundry chute when I heard a door open downstairs. The family had returned. Almost immediately, they began freaking out about the mess I had made. I went downstairs to meet them, and the daughter started screaming when she saw me. Where is the mannequin, I asked, in as calm a tone as I could muster. Please, just tell me where your mannequin is. But she kept screaming, and after a few seconds, the dad returned from the garage with a baseball bat, so I made my way toward the front door. Once on the front lawn, I became desperate. I could feel it slipping away from me. I made one last plea before the door was slammed shut. Your mannequin is gone, I said. Did you move it? Where did it go? I don't know what you're talking about, said the dad. There is no mannequin. I'm calling the cops. I was still on the front lawn, a sobbing, heaving pile, when the police arrived. Part 3 when I was nine years old, I had a dream that there was a room in my house which, in the waking world, did not exist. But the dream was so simple, so vivid, that a part of me became convinced that the room was real, and that I'd simply failed to notice it all these years. The next day I went down to the basement to check and see if the room was there. It was not. I only wanted it to be. Perhaps at an age when the horizons of my world were largely constrained to my house, and whatever places my mother deigned to drive me, my brain was attempting to will new frontiers into existence. The dream room was located beyond the crawl space section of the basement, through a half-sized door that opened into a full-sized room. A clean, unoccupied, and sparsely furnished bedroom with mirrored walls and a bar opposite the bed. Standing in the room, in my dream, felt dangerous, like I was trespassing. I desperately wanted to move into the room. 
Sometime after this dream, I had another, in which I envisioned a tunnel emanating from the crawl space and terminating at a fantastical house on a hill some several hundred yards away. The house itself was not real, but the field behind my house that the tunnel traversed and the rest of the geography were accurate. It was summer then, and I spent my days at home, alone, largely unoccupied, and so I took it upon myself to begin the tunnel that I had seen in my dreams. I went into the crawl space and found that there was one section of the wall which was simply dirt, not covered over with concrete, and so I took a hammer from my father's toolbox and began using the back end like a pickaxe. I was down there for hours digging, though I made sure to carry as much of the dirt as I could into the yard and to take a shower before my parents returned from work. The rest of the summer passed in a similar fashion. Whenever I grew bored, which happened often as all of my friends lived outside of what I would have considered walking or even biking distance, I would head down to the basement for a few hours of digging. There was no destination in mind. I was simply digging forward. Digging, always digging. My muscle memory for the task developed and I became quite proficient at it. The summer eventually ended and my digging was pushed to the weekends when I could disappear into the basement for hours at a time without raising suspicion. I would sometimes go down and dig for a bit at night when I could not sleep. By this point, my tunnel was long enough that I could work without fear of making so much noise that I would wake up my parents asleep upstairs. The tunnel became something of an escape for me. Hunched over and sweating and mud smeared in the bowels of the earth, enough dirt above me to crush my ribcage, crush my skull, but always moving forward, making tangible progress. Year by year, my tunnel grew longer. It became a game to see how far I could go. Early October, I'd make sure the boxes of Christmas decorations were stacked in front of the entrance. Early December, I'd move the Halloween boxes into their place. The tunnel was just large enough for me to crawl through, and sometimes I would go into the tunnel and decide I didn't want to dig after all, and I would turn off my flashlight and lay on my back and pretend to be dead. A few years after I started the tunnel, a development company broke ground on a new neighborhood across the main road from mine. My hometown is the kind of town where the neighborhoods are neatly planned and manufactured and therefore need manufactured generic names plastered on the signs at their entrances. My neighborhood was called Deer Path Estates. The new subdivision was named Lakefield Estates. My dad used to say that if you lived in a neighborhood with estate in the name, you almost assuredly did not live in an estate. And neither my subdivision or the new one housed anything that could be reasonably called an estate, although the houses in the new neighborhood, while still large, were decidedly even less estate-like than the houses in our neighborhood, which some of my mother's friends, she said, were none too pleased about, to the point that some of them even looked into filing a lawsuit against the developer. I began going for walks at night when I was 16 years old, if only to be out of the house for a while. I often used these walks to explore the Lakefield Estates neighborhood, all of the side streets and cul-de-sacs, the playground and the nature trail it installed between rows of houses. One house stood out in my mind. After all the other houses had been sold and occupied, this house still sat empty, a front lawn for sale sign swinging listlessly in the late night wind. A fine, rarefied sort of breeze, reserved for those bodies conscious and walking around after midnight, those winds carrying the air from faraway exotic lands, cool against your skin, and too choice to blow through at two in the afternoon, when everyone and their mother could experience it, and therefore nobody would, 
Nobody would stop and close their eyes and smell the air, feel their skin forming goosebumps. Nobody would even think to listen to the faint whistling, if it could be heard at all over midday traffic, and imagine the salty, brine-reeking sea or seething jungle miasma that the wind was carrying into town, and so the world saves them, its finest winds, the ones carrying all of her secrets, for the smallest hours of the morning. The finest of them all feel as if I'm the only person experiencing it for miles. The only person who will ever experience this unique breeze. Because by the time it reaches the next lonely soul four towns over, it will be a different breeze. It will have me on it, and all the foulness and sin of lakeside estates and deer path estates, and every other phony estate subdivision in between. Those are the breezes that I miss when I am deep in the tunnel, where the silence is the sound of the earth. Crawl far enough and it all disappears. Light, sound, sense of yourself as a physical body in a space with an up and a down, and all you're left with is the sound of your own hot breath blasted back in your face, the pulsing of your blood rushing past your ears, the mucky feeling of cool dirt between your fingers. The house that would not leave my mind after the first time I saw it was situated on a corner lot, perched on top of a gentle rise that generously might be called a small hill. All of the houses in this development had obnoxiously large lawns, but this corner house's lawn was even bigger than its neighbors by virtue of being a corner lot, and on top of that, neither of the lots on either side had houses built on them yet, and so the tundra of close-cropped grass around the corner house extended in an unsettlingly wide stretch, unmolested by so much as a sapling tree. This gave the house the distinct effect of appearing to be alone. The sense that this corner house was somehow apart from all the other houses around it was further enhanced by its subtly but noticeably different architecture, which was, as a general rule, narrower and taller than the other houses in the neighborhood. In the darkness, with the shadows of the streetlights falling short on the front lawn, as if a sieging army of shadows were clawing their way towards the front door and had run out of supplies midway through the overlong trek, the house took on the appearance of leaning away from the viewer, as if in fright or aberration, posed like one of those cartoon Halloween black cats that had been so startled that its hackles and tails stand up straight in a few jagged tufts. The facades of most houses look like people, and the corner house simply looked like a little bit more of a person than most other houses. I quickly became fascinated with it, would detour my walks to pass it. A certain feeling radiated from it, which I could not define, but found darkly intoxicating. It did not take me long to realize that the tunnel I had spent years digging ran in the general direction of the corner house. About a year ago, I dug my tunnel under the main road dividing Deer Path and Lakeside Estates. Roughly one month passed from the time that I first heard the road noise over my head and the time when I could no longer hear the road noise. It was the first time in my digging that I gained any idea of where I was in relation to the world above ground. I decided to make a conscious effort, for the first time, to steer my tunnel even more directly towards the corner house. Last Saturday, I told my parents I was going over to a friend's house and set off into the tunnel. The early summer sunlight disappeared entirely for the better part of an hour as I crawled to the farthest reach of my tunnel and then went to work. I hadn't been at it long when I broke through into a dark and musty, unfinished basement. Clods of dirt spilled out across the concrete floor. I waited and listened for any indication of life, the sound of people moving around upstairs, but I heard nothing. In fact, the silence inside of the house was identical to the total, deathly silence inside of the tunnel, something I would not recognize until much later. If I'd had my eyes closed, I wouldn't have even known I was no longer in the tunnel. 
I cautiously ventured up the stairs and found the house completely unfinished. I cautiously ventured up the stairs and found the house completely unfurnished, undecorated. I knew that I had landed in the corner house. The first floor was empty, like I was walking through a display room at a hardware store. I checked through each room on the second story and found it similarly empty until I arrived at the farthest room. This room was also empty, save for a small, rickety-looking work table in the far corner, which held a sewing machine and a messy pile of pins and fabric, as well as an assortment of other tools, a spool of spring, scraps of wood. The floor was littered with a handful of human-sized puppets, alternately leaning against the wall, or slouched forward, or laying flat on the floor. Their eyes gazed vacantly ahead. This scene quite disturbed me, and I left the house after that, though I kept the back door unlocked and made sure to monitor the house for the next several days. When I was sure that no one else was using the house anymore, I packed a backpack with my sleeping bag and a book and as many snacks as I could take without my parents noticing, and then waited for them to fall asleep before leaving for the house. The thrill of sliding open the back door in the darkness and stepping inside and closing it behind me, closing myself into the still thicker darkness and obstinate silence, was almost overwhelming. I took a lap around the house, almost too giddy to contain myself, to make sure that I was alone. Upon returning downstairs, I noticed movement outside the front window. There was an old lady with short, curly white hair who often rode her bike around the lakeside estates while I was walking. Her bike was of a very dated fashion, like something from the 50s, and she rode it around and around the neighborhood, always at the same steady and languid pace, hunched forward over the handlebars. Her posture bore more of old age or an eternal exhaustion ingrained bone deep than of any sort of devoted exertion towards speed. She always wore small, dark sunglasses, even though I only saw her at night. I once extended her a very courteous nod and wave, which, if she saw it, she ignored. And now she was on the street just in front of the corner house's driveway, straddling her still bike, feet on the pavement and her head turned towards me, her eyes unknowable behind those round black lenses, but presumably fixed on the house. The tiny movements in her neck showed her scanning the house curiously up and down. There's no way that she can see me, I thought. There's no way she could know that I'm in here. After about a minute, the old woman mounted her bike once more and resumed her pedaling, soon turning a corner and disappearing from sight. I set my sleeping bag down on the living room floor and settled in, doing a bit of reading by flashlight before falling asleep. Sometime later, I was awoken. It was still dark outside, and for a short, terrible moment, I forgot entirely where I was. As the seconds passed, I rose more and more thoroughly into consciousness, my body adjusting along the way. At some point, I noticed... By the orange glow of the streetlights through the front windows and the chilled moonlight falling through the rear windows, that several figures were in the room with me. Human silhouettes, scattered in the shadowy corners, watching me. I dared not move. I barely dared breathe, for fear that they would recognize that I was now awake, and that this would in some way or another shake up the current situation for the worse. As my eyes adjusted, I realized that the watching figures were the puppets from upstairs. I wondered if someone had snuck into the house and set them up this way to scare me, and I wondered if that person was still in the house, or even among the figures. Then, in the smudgy corner of my vision, I saw one of them move. I stood up and stumbled out of my sleeping bag and ran for the front door. I sprinted back to my own house, breath burning in my throat, not looking back once. 
At a point, I thought that I heard the clopping sound of footsteps on the pavement behind me, or maybe it was only the sound of my own footsteps echoing off the sleeping houses as I ran past through alternating pools of streetlight and night, the power of each heightened by the contrast with the other. I woke up this morning to sunlight and the sound of birds and someone across the street mowing their lawn. The world I woke up to made me consider the possibility that all of the prior night had been a dream. It might have been, but after I ate breakfast, I went downstairs and found the entrance to my tunnel collapsed, a hastily piled mound of dirt waiting for me where for years I had found the gaping black maw at the entrance to my own personal underworld. And still, this was not the part that I found most shocking. Next to the tunnel was a half door, clean cut and freshly painted, looking completely out of place. But something told me that the door had always been there, belonged there perhaps more than I did. I had simply not seen it until now. A blood-chilling thought. I attempted to open the door, but unlike in my dream, it was locked. Still, I knew what I would find inside. A bed and a bar and some mirrors on the wall. But crouched there in the crawl space like a stricken rat huddled in front of some ancient columned temple far too grand to comprehend. I knew, somewhere in the corner of my being, that there was someone inside the room behind that door even at that very moment, and that someday, possibly soon, I will return to that spot, and when I do, I will find the door unlocked. Part 4. The House on the Rock I thought I glimpsed a purple hill out of the corner of my eye, but it was just another green one, one rolling into another in a picturesque pastoral mosaic, and maybe the angle of the sun on my sunglasses. A sign next to the road advertising the house on the rock in five miles. No such sign indicated when the hallucinations would begin. The house is partly a kitschy roadside attraction, though that undersells the mind-boggling grandiosity of it. It is sort of a museum, but then not really. Nothing is really labeled or sourced, and the prospect of learning anything here is dubious. It is maybe best described as a monument to one man's singular vision slash derangement. The first of three sections is the actual house, a claustrophobic fever dream maze, a pastiche of Japanese design and full of two low ceilings and staircases that go up to nowhere and come back down in the same room, and long low couches that face blank walls. There are dozens of guests milling about, and still the place smells like the musty, stale attic of someone's three-week dead grandparent. Why are there families here? Who takes children to this demented place? The veneer of the world is thin here. I can feel it as I am shepherded into the next section by a placid-faced old man. Nobody who works here is under 70. Surely these are demons chaperoning me through purgatory. That's what this is. He smiles serenely at us and we go on our way. The thing that I keep telling myself, over and over like a nervous tick, is that none of it makes any goddamn sense. It's an anchor that I can latch myself to, along with my sanity. Nobody around me seems to think any of this is wrong. They walk languidly from exhibit to exhibit, staring at each one for the polite amount of time before moving on. These must be actors. These are all a part of the house, as mechanical as the player instruments. Put a coin in them and watch them gawk. These are not kindred souls, not human. Maybe the whole place is one big art installation, a David Lynch-designed postcard roadside novelty, the gaping rot at the heart of Americana. 
Rooms full of clowns transition directly into rooms full of Baroque player orchestras with seemingly no guiding project or vision in mind. You're looking at a collection of souvenir Santa Claus plates from the 50s, and you turn around, and there's an ornate diorama of some decrepit nightmare fairy tale town. Music plays too loud, it plays for too long, it stops abruptly in the middle of songs and nobody seems to notice. You study anything too closely, and you realize that they're all just one-dimensional cardboard cutouts. The veneer is thin. It's grotesque and absurd and beautiful and pointless. Who did this? Behind the display glass windows, dozens of facsimiles of rooms, the dimensions not quite squaring in my brain, just a couple inches too cramped on every axis. Hundreds of dolls, simulacra of human faces, staring at you from behind the glass, and I begin to get the sense that there is some vestige of humanity in these glassy eyes, if not full souls, then something remnant here, trapped in these dusty cobwebbed rooms for eternity. It's not hard to imagine some distant future where humanity has ceased to exist, but these dolls go on staring. The mechanical instruments go on playing still for nobody. The further I wander through the winding windowless passages, the harder it is to remember what the outside world is. Maybe it has already ended. How long have I been here? The air is hot and impossibly heavy. It feels like it hasn't stirred in a hundred years. It's hard to breathe in places and soon I'm sweating. If I don't feel a breeze soon, I'm going to suffocate. Purgatory. The place feels like an extravagant funeral parlor. There's a distinct morbidity hanging in the air. None of these things need humans to run anymore, and maybe they'd be happier if we just left them alone. It all adds up to some sort of monolithic feeling that I can't put my finger on, and the more I try, the more I get the sense that it all adds up to nothing. The thing I keep coming back to is that someone actually did all of this. They gave an incomprehensible amount of time, undoubtedly the better part of their life, if not to physically designing and creating all of this bullshit, then still to the work of acquiring and organizing all of it. A life in tchotchkes. It overwhelms my senses. The sheer amount of stuff, of detail, sitting out here in the middle of rural Wisconsin. Midway through I start to feel exhausted. I just can't look at any more things. I'm out of attention. President's dead, a news article exclaims. A room full of old cameras, an exhibit on the history of aviation sharing a room with a model 1950s kitchen, part of some sort of ode to nostalgia. It feels like I am walking through the brain of an adolescent child as they develop a new obsession every six months, become an expert on medieval battles and World War II aircraft, learn every detail there is to learn on the subject of pipe organs, and then one day drop the interest and never think about it again. It feels like I am walking through the brain of a madman, and maybe I am, or maybe it is starting to drive me mad. Large groups of people appear and disappear seemingly into thin air. Voices from other rooms that are actually the same room, cacophony followed by eerie silence, and every now and then, a demure senior citizen to tell you where to go next. We pass through the cafeteria, and I can't tell if it is a functioning restaurant or another exhibit. We pass through an entire hall containing various crowns and crown jewels from England. Nobody is guarding it, and there's a large spider in one of the glass cases. There's no indication that it's all plastic costume jewelry. I begin to get the sense that I am walking in a sort of holy place. All of this feels like it was worked on in the pursuit of gratifying some higher power or calling, one that I don't think even its creators could have fully articulated. 
I don't have the slightest notion about what this larger thing might be, beyond having a notion that it indeed exists, and that its presence is suffused into every dollhouse and tuxedoed mannequin and carousel animal. I'm a blind man touching some tiny part of the proverbial giant sea monster sculpture in section 2. Every time I try to convince myself that this is just some eccentric guy's collection of trinkets, I am overwhelmed by the sheer size of the collection and grandiosity of detail. A monument out of time to that eternal feeling, that nostalgia for something half-remembered and always just out of reach. It's as if a very lonely person wanted to bring the whole world into his house in Wisconsin. The plush carpets on every surface, the ornate wallpaper, the dim sconces and hushed tones, I half expect to turn the corner and find Alex Jordan Jr.'s corpse there, preserved all of these years later in a glass display coffin in his house and surrounded by flowers, a line a thousand people long waiting to pay their respects. I've been waiting to see him since 1966, says one old man with a prayer card clutched between his hands. There's a botched drawing of Mickey Mouse on one side and the misheard lyrics of an Elvis song on the other. A full orchestra of animatronic men and women play the funeral march while a one-eyed man with a tin toolbox shoves his hand into the first chair cellist's back. He's looking at me. The last section of the map is marked as the Carousel of Dolls, but in reality there are about a dozen carousels. They are several stories high, lavishly decorated, and every crevice is filled with dolls. Calliope carnival music drifts hauntingly down from somewhere as we walk across the catwalk and down some scaffolding, descending lower and lower, possibly into hell, I think, and the carousels turn and turn and the dolls sit there staring out at us, a thousand dolls or more, each in their place. Coming around one of the last bends in the path, I come face to face with that thing which has haunted me and occupied my every thought in the three days since. On the last carousel before the exit, on the third row up from the bottom, there sits a doll that looks exactly like me. I stood there watching it for nearly 20 minutes, watching my face spin stupidly round and round, leering back at me for a few moments before disappearing around the bend. Each time it went out of sight, I'd hoped I'd oversold just how much of a resemblance there was, and with every rotation, my despair grew deeper. I saw my red hair and the stubble on my face reflected back at me. My freckles, my exact nose and bushy eyebrows, even the faint scar above my lip, they were all there. Those green eyes, my green eyes, taunted me, unblinking, all-seeing. An usher came to fetch me eventually. The place was closing for the evening. Whenever I find myself in those quiet corners of museums, around those unremarkable exhibits that seem to almost repel attention, I find myself inevitably drawn to thinking about what it would be like to be caught inside after hours at night in the dark. The House on the Rock is the only museum, if you can call it that, which seems expressly designed with that thought in mind, to elicit visions of dolls and mannequins coming to life and crawling out of their flimsy display cases. It's all one big, sick joke. Some piece of me is trapped behind those glass eyes, doomed to an eternity of watching the vacant, gawking faces of cardboard cutout tourists passing in front of me. The knowing, smirking usher in the corner of the room, his teeth sharp and his skin perpetually melting off of his face. The visage of the doll haunts my dreams. My own image, the only outward expression of myself I've ever known, and a $30 ticket to see myself. Completely unremarkable, only of note as a road trip oddity because there are 5,000 other dolls in the room with me. 
my own face, stripped of subtlety and summarized in that stupid, glassy, glazed-over doll simper. My soul will remain in the house on the rock forevermore, in hell. When I die, that is all that will be left, spinning round and round long after the last guest has passed, after the last human has drawn breath. The world plunged back into dark silence and my tottering, creaking carousel still turning, turning. Do the other dolls all hold some piece of humanness within them too? Do they wait, inert, dormant, all glass and plastic, until their doppelganger is unfortunate enough to show up in front of them, look them in the eye, forever entomb their soul there? If I could even turn my head to look at them, or open my mouth to speak, if I could only. I expect that I will live for some years after this, and yet, for all of those years I will carry with me the knowledge that waiting for me on my last day is that doll in that carousel, in that house in Wisconsin.